the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It is our final show till Wednesday of next week. Because of Christmas, we will be dark. The radio station will be closed on Christmas and the day following. So have a wonderful Christmas. We'll talk a little bit more about that in our program today. But I'm excited because this is a program that we get to say Merry Christmas to everybody. Hi, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever they might be, whatever's going on in your life. If you have any questions about Christmas, I'll do the best I can to answer those as well. Um, Please bear with me for a moment because I want us to really focus on the value of Christmas to each and every one of us. Not just a time where we are nice to people or not just a time where we go to parties or eat a lot of food, but a time where we remember what was done for us nearly 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. You see, when Jesus came into this world, Calvary was his objective. Dying for your sins and mine was the reason that he came. And this was a baby boy born in miraculous circumstances. If I get to it today, I've even got a question about that. But a baby boy born in miraculous circumstances who had no hope of a life like most babies that are born. He wouldn't get married and have kids of his own. He wouldn't have a successful business career. He wouldn't be loved universally by everyone. But this was a child that was born with one purpose, and that was to die. I mean, consider momentarily God invading humanity by becoming one of us. And not just becoming one of us, but becoming an infant. You know, if I was God and I was going to come to earth, I might say, well, okay, if I got to do it, I'm going to do it. But I'm going to go as a king or I'm going to be an adult. I'm going to be strong. But not Jesus. He came completely dependent upon a mother and a stepfather. He had to learn things. God who created everything had to learn things. Not only did he humble himself by becoming an infant, he was an infant born in what we would describe as abject poverty. No place to stay. You all know the Christmas story. And yet he came anyway. This baby changed the world and became your Savior and mine. And all because he was God's gift of love to us. God became a child to take away the sins of the world, yours and mine. All of that to say, let's really focus this weekend as we go to 
Sunday services on Christmas Eve. It's really focus on all that we have to be grateful for. Not the presents under our tree, not the amount of money that we've spent buying gifts for others, or not even in the gifts that were bought for us. Not in the fact that families are going to be together. But grateful because we can be together in Christ. This is really, really a great time of year. Well, here's the phone number for your live calls and questions, 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, 630-5757. You can email questions on this final program before Christmas by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in using our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app and hit the call now button. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Just a quick preview of what's coming um, here this weekend at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Remember, wherever you go to church, you're going to tell others about this baby who was born to die. Um, Tonight, we're going to be studying one of my favorite stories, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9. Uh, truly a story of redemption. And then for those of us who will be here tonight at Calvary Chapel, we're immediately following, we have a special surprise as well, another story of redemption uh, that I'm really, really excited about. I'll be doing a Christmas message on Sunday. As usual, I like to talk about the people in the Christmas message, so that's what I'm going to be talking about. And again, just a warm Merry Christmas from uh, Paula, from me, uh, from all the people at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Take that love to your church this weekend. One more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's our first question. It's anonymous. Um, Pastor Ron, how would you explain God to someone who only believes in what he can see or touch? How can I make the gospel something they can see? Anonymous, thanks for wanting to make the gospel something they can see. But you can't do anything. We don't have to explain God. All we have to do is declare him. Now, that's an important thing to remember. We, we so often feel the pressure of, of having the right explanation or the right packaging in terms of how we present the gospel of Jesus Christ. All we have to do is declare it. You see, you can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And he works through the Word of God. So just tell them. The Bible talks, and you can tell them, especially now at Christmas, this is a great time to to share the gospel that began in Bethlehem. You say, you know, God became a baby because it takes a man to die for the sins of man. And because God loved you so much, he sent his son to die in your place and mine. He sent a son to live a perfect life because we couldn't to satisfy the righteous requirements of God. And they killed him for it. And when he died, he didn't stay dead. He's alive. And the evidence of his life, death, and resurrection are overwhelming And that empty tomb validates everything Jesus said about himself, and he said he was God. And then challenge him to check it out. And by the way, we believe in a lot of things that we can't see or touch. We believe in air. I mean, think about it. You can't touch it. You can't see it. Now, if a wind is blowing, you can see wind, but but not the atmosphere that we breathe. Most of us believe in a solar system, we can't see it without telescopes. Light travels 186,000 miles per second. We can't see that, but we believe in it. All we do is flip the switch and the light comes on. Think about the act of faith that, that requires. You walk into a dark room, you're stumbling around, you just know there's a light switch and you're going to hit it. My point is simply this. This is where faith comes in. 
not blind faith. Often when we're trying to share Jesus with people anonymous, um, you know, they'll say, don't pull the faith card on me. But there has to be a measure of faith, and we don't need to apologize for that. We can focus on the things that he or she can see. They can see the sun come up in the eastern sky every day. They can watch the sun set in the west. They can, through their own life experience, recognize that the seasons come and go every year and winter is always cold and miserable and summer is always hot. They can see these things. They know they're going to happen. Well, there's got to be a designer behind that design. And then just introduce him to them. His name is Jesus. I challenge you to check it out. Now, if they won't check it out, they really don't want to know the answers. But remember, we don't have to defend. We don't have to explain. We simply need to declare. One other thing that you can do, Anonymous, is that you can make sure that when you're around them, they see Jesus. They hear him. They see him. They know he's real to you. And then trust the Holy Spirit. And then our job becomes to pray for those that we're sharing with. But it's certainly not intelligent. I'm trying to choose my words carefully. To say I only believe in what I can see and touch because that's simply and avoidably true. So that's the best I can do. I hope that helps you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from... um, Skip, he says, where did I, I lost my, oh, here it is, (laughs) sorry, Skip says, it's hard to believe a virgin could get pregnant, how can I explain that to unbelievers? Skip, here's something else that we simply need to declare. Uh, It is hard to believe a virgin could get pregnant. You want proof? Read the story of Joseph. Think about this for a moment. Joseph had met the girl of his dreams. He must have thought when he fell in love with Mary, when the marriage almost certainly would have been arranged between families. The first time he saw her, he must have thought, I hit the wife jackpot. He knew she was a good girl, a girl who loved God. And all of a sudden, during their year of betrothal, she had to tell him that she was with the, with child. I'm pregnant, and Joseph would a- immediately know that he hadn't been with her. And the only thing that he would be able to imagine is that she'd cheated on him. And everybody in this audience knows the story, because he was a kind man. He wanted to put her away quietly. Mary could have been stoned under the law of Moses. But he wanted just to put her away quietly. Imagine how heartbroken he was. Joseph, it's not true. I haven't been with any man. But you tell me you're pregnant, he would say. And she would say, yes, I am. But God is the father. And she would tell him the story. And honestly, none of us could blame Joseph. He didn't believe a word of it. Not a word of it. That's when Gabriel shows up and says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child that is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. So it's hard to believe that a virgin could get pregnant. That's why we call it the miraculous birth. So don't explain it. Just tell the story. You know, Skip, that's one of the reasons that I like uh, Christmas and Easter. Palm Sunday, I throw in that as well. But um, there are these events on the church calendar that come every year, and you tell the same stories. There's nothing new in these stories. 
There's no new clever way to approach it. There's nothing original, nothing I haven't said before. And I learned a long time ago to stop trying to figure out ways to make this interesting. I just tell the story. As I said earlier, I like to focus on the people in the story and what what the story means to them. And I'll do that again this Sunday. But when we tell the story, the Spirit of God works. Is anything too difficult for God? The Bible asks repeatedly. With man this is impossible, Jesus said, but with God all things are possible. And that means a virgin birth. Now, if somebody asks you why the virgin birth is important, there's something that you can explain. Well, you see, we're born with a sin nature. If Jesus had a sin nature, he would have sinned. He couldn't have saved us from our sins. And sin was passed through the Father. That's why God was the Father. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary. So that's why the virgin birth was necessary. In addition, the virgin birth fulfilled prophecy. But just because something is hard to believe doesn't mean God didn't do it. And again, we can point to the evidence. It's overwhelming. But we've got to challenge these people to check it out for themselves. We can't answer their questions. We don't know what sin they're dealing with that they don't want to get rid of. But we can challenge them to check out the facts and decide for themselves what's true. And then we can pray. Same answer to you, Skip, as to the anonymous question a few moments ago. If somebody came to me, I'm their pastor, and said, I haven't had sex, but I'm pregnant, I wouldn't believe them. There's only one miraculous conception. Imagine how difficult it was for Mary's parents, for Joseph and his family. We know it was difficult to believe for the Jews, the those who would become religious leaders in Israel. We know the story circulated that she was with a Roman soldier. She had a reputation Mary did her entire life from that point forward of being a loose woman. Remember the Pharisees, if we know who our father is, they told Jesus, but you don't know. Jesus said, your father is the devil. So yeah, it might be hard to believe, but that's the whole point of the the miraculous. So Skip, believe it, because the evidence is overwhelming. 340-9585. Here is a question from Dale. I like this question, Dale. Says Pastor, and why did Jesus curse the fig tree? You're talking about uh, the triumphal entry story. Uh, Jesus was uh, coming into Jerusalem to be proclaimed for the very first time as the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One to come. And the next morning, he goes to Bethany, or that evening, he goes to Bethany, spends the night, gets up early to come back into. Jerusalem and he's hungry and there is a leafy fig tree now typically and this is only typical that doesn't describe every fig tree we've been given a fig tree in our backyard it, uh, it's a reminder of the people that gave it to us helps me remember to pray them, to pray for them rather and this fig tree promised breakfast. Jesus was hungry. He dug in around the fig leaves and found no fruit. And he cursed the tree. May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And of course he shocked the disciples. Now, the question, why did he do it? I think is the most important part. 
You see the day before. This is all one series of events. The day before Jesus rides into Jerusalem at exactly the right time, April 6, 32 AD, the streets of Jerusalem were packed. He's riding on a donkey, the foal of a donkey, donkey that had never been ridden, just as was prophesied. He came in at exactly the day that was predicted by the prophet Daniel in conjunction with the restoration, the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem in the time of Nehemiah. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2. The people were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He would look into their eyes and we don't have any record of this, but I imagine because God knew everything, he would look into their eyes and the Holy Spirit, which was the power behind Jesus' earthly ministry, would speak to him. Those same lips are going to be cursing you. Those same lips are going to be calling for Barabbas in only a matter of days. And even though Jesus came in at exactly the time they expected the Messiah to come in, he came in on the animal that he was supposed to come in. Though the, the people knew that this was the day, he knew that they would reject him. Remember his disciples, they thought, Jesus, you thought this was going to be terrible. This is good. But Jesus knew it wasn't good. Sort of false fruit. And then he'd go into the temple and see in the outer courts the money changers tables you remember he went in after thinking about what he would do all night and turned over the tables you've turned my father's house instead of being a house of prayer you've turned it into a den of thieves again it looked like God's house but it wasn't his house at all he'd been kicked out God had more false fruit then he was questioned by the religious leaders. Think about this for a moment. The religious leaders with their long flowing robes, with their phylacteries and their hats, and their outward display of piety. And yet inwardly Jesus knew that they were plotting his death. He knew that they'd opposed him at every turn. And he just had it. They were supposed to be God's representatives to the people. Instead, they were representing the devil and his work. And after sleeping on all of those events, he looked at the fig tree and all he wanted was breakfast. Imagine this. Our Savior was hungry. Dale, he just wanted some food. And while it promised fruit, with all the leaves, he would dig in with his hand and there would be no fruit at all. I think that was sort of the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And he cursed the fig tree as a sort of a sermon illustration, a life illustration for his disciples. This is all we've dealt with, people that pretended to be one thing, and yet they were something altogether different. A temple, religious leaders, the people in the streets, they all said one thing with their lips, but something completely different with their minds and hearts. And I think that fig tree was simply an illustration to the 12 followers of Jesus, his disciples, of his broken heart. We know that he looked out over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you knew, if you only knew that I'd come to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But because you did not know the time of my coming. And he pronounced judgment. Well, that fig tree was judged by God. Jesus giving them 
an illustration of what he's experiencing. One other thought, and again, I don't know this for sure. Imagine Jesus going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Remember what Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness with when they'd eaten from the tree, the forbidden tree, a fig leaf. And I think Jesus, who created everything that is, he created it perfect and beautiful and magnificent. And I think beyond any doubt, at that moment, he was fed up with fig leaves, a picture of sin entering into the world. He came to his own, and his own received him not. So, Dale, I think that's why Jesus cursed the fig tree. I think all of that was going through his mind and through his heart. And his heart was broken. And I don't think his heart is any less broken today. As we finish this first half of the program, let's maybe all together purpose in our heart, Jesus, we're going to show fruit when you come to your house on Sunday, on Christmas Eve. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left. I know you're busy, but we'd love your live calls. 340-9585. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back again i'm I'm not repeating myself because i keep forgetting i just want to remind you we will not be live on monday or Tuesday this week because of the Christmas holiday and the, the day after Christmas, KSLR will be shut down. And I'll miss you, so I won't be able to talk to you again until Wednesday. But we would love any calls or questions you have in this last half hour of the program. Let's go to David on line one. David, thanks for calling. Merry Christmas. You're on the air. Merry Christmas to you, too. I would like to talk about a subject that might be a little that might be a little controversial to non-Christians, and that's why Christmas Christianity should be defended. Explain what you mean by defended, David. Well, what I mean by that is that Christianity, to me, is more than just a religion. It's uh, It's a way of life. It is a passion of Jesus Christ, and if we don't defend it, basically what will happen is Christianity as a whole may die. Yeah, thank you, David. I appreciate it, and I'm, I will comment on it. And again, Merry Christmas to you. Uh, a couple of things. Um, I, I've been talking in the, uh, earlier in the program. I don't think we need to defend Christianity. We need to declare Christ. That's what we need to do. We need as Christians to live our faith. We need to be men and women who are filled with joy. And I don't mean happiness. I don't mean to pretend like everything's okay if things aren't okay. But even during difficult times, having real joy. And when we have that joy, the joy of the Lord is our strength, we're told. David writes, in his presence there's fullness of joy. When we have joy, even through difficult times, believe me, the world, the unbelieving world around us is noticing. So, again, we have to declare it, declare it with our lives and declare it with our lips. The other thing, David, it's very important. Uh, Christianity is not going to go away. Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Sometimes it looks like the world is winning. Read Psalm 73 to Asaph. It looked exactly the same way. Surely God is good to Israel. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. He envied the prosperity of the wicked. And it must have looked to him at that point in his life like, what value is there in following God? What value is there in obeying God? I mean, the wicked people are getting blessed. And then he comes to the conclusion, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destination. I think we need to understand that whatever it looks like is going on in our world, these are the things that Jesus said would happen in the last days. Read Second Timothy, Paul's final letter. In the last days, mark this, Timothy. Write it down. There will be perilous times. 
and he describes the times that we're living in. But that doesn't mean Christianity is going away. It means that Christ himself is coming again soon. And that's what we need to declare. Jesus is coming. And we know he's coming because he promised. And we look at that empty tomb. I keep going back to the empty tomb. We look at that empty tomb and we know that all of his promises are yes and amen. So we don't defend. We simply declare. One final thought, David. Thank you for the reminder to everybody in the audience that Christianity is not a religion at all. Religion has always been man's attempt to reach up to God. We've always failed miserably. Relationship that God has always so desired only resulted because God reached down to mankind. So I get a little offenses, offended when people say Christianity is just another religion and all religions are... No, it's not a religion at all. That's to miss the point altogether. Thank you, David. Merry Christmas. Let's go to Terry on line two from San Antonio. Terry, thanks for calling. Merry Christmas to you. Terry, you there? Yes. Hi, Pastor Ron. Hi, Terry. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, Pastor, and then I'll listen off the air. The first one is, what is a phylactery or whatever they say? Is that the little, like, little box that the Jews... Jewish people wear on their foreheads, the men, when they uh-huh. go in prayer. And then the that's second right. one is, sir, I'm sorry. And then the no, go ahead. I, I just think that's right. Oh, okay. And uh, the second one is, did uh, when Jesus wept, did he weep for Lazarus who had died, or was, was he weeping for Israel? And now oh. listen off the air. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. God bless you. Merry Christmas. Oh, great question. The phylactery, Terry, you have it exactly right. You know, when the law says bind the, the, the word of God uh, on your, on your, in your brain, on your foreheads, they would put it around their forehead. Uh, on their wrists, they would carry it. It was just um, uh, scriptures from their scrolls. And the idea is that they would carry the word of God with them, but completely neglect the word of God. So that's what a phylactery is. You have that exactly right. Um, the other question, Terry. Um, uh, John 11 Jesus wept is is John 11.35 and uh, Terry he wept at the tomb of Lazarus and he did so um, he wasn't weeping for Lazarus he wasn't he he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead this was a plan he stayed away four days so that the glory of God could be manifest what he was weeping for in part yes he was weeping for Jerusalem But imagine the scene as Jesus is there and even Mary and Martha, who loved him, were maybe a little aggressive in approaching. If only you'd been here, Lord, my brother would be alive. Sort of blaming Jesus for his brother's death or for her brother's death. And he would look around, he would see all of the people mourning and grieving in Middle Eastern cultures. Even today, they hire professional mourners. Life is tough. They don't have time to take three months to to get over their pain. They've they've got to get out. So they would hire professional mourners. Now, we know that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were were a wealthy family. And um, uh, so they they would have hired these professional mourners. It would have helped them get over the grief or get through the grief, working through it much more quickly. They they, they couldn't afford uh, to to spend a whole bunch of time grieving in, in, in the ancient world. And so he would see all of the tears. And then he would say to roll away the stone and his famous words, by now, Lord, he stinketh. He's been there four days. And when Jesus wept, and it, it's, it's a very tense word in Greek. It's, it's a, a, a living language, Koine Greek. And he wept intensely. And the reason he wept was because he would have remembered the Garden of Eden. He would have remembered that, that creation that was good, not, not just good, but very good. And he would have thought, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. This isn't what I created. I created perfection. Look what sin has done to my world. That's why he was crying, Terry. 
not for Lazarus. Lazarus would be with him in a moment. But he was crying because it was never intended, this earth, for the kind of pain that Jesus experienced every day. And this because these were people that were so close to him, people that really loved him. It was a very tender and emotional moment. I'm glad he cried. I'm glad he was disappointed in the world and the way it's turned out because he's promised to make it like it was before. We can look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, but he was crying, Terry, because his perfect creation had fallen so far. If Jesus were walking around the streets of San Antonio to Texas today, he'd be crying, wondering, how did it ever get this way? How did we ever end up here? And, of course, he's asking questions that he knows the answers to. But the answer is and always has been sin. Thank you very much, Terry. Let's go to Jonestown now and talk with Dale on line one. Dale, Merry Christmas. You're on the air. Merry Christmas, Pastor Ron. I just had a comment and then uh, also a question, if I may. Okay. Um, To follow up on on your thoughts on the fig tree, it also brought to mind uh, Jeremiah 8, where he Mm -hmm. says, There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Mm -hmm. Great observation. Great, great observation. We, we, we know that the fig tree is, is, has been a biblical symbol for Israel. So uh, I think that's a, a perfectly appropriate application, Dale. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And then uh, I've been struggling with Romans uh, chapter 5, verse 13, and how to reconcile that with um, the flood, Adam and Gomorrah, etc. Did you say Romans 5? Yeah, chapter 5, uh, verse 13. Okay, let me get there, and I will do what I can. Romans chapter 5, um, verse 13 says, let me get there, For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam. Well, Adam broke the command, um, Dale, that was given to him uh, verbally by God. So so the, the word of God is a command, whether it came verbally or whether it came in the law of Moses. I understand that Adam was way, way before the law of Moses. But at the same time, God gives commands, and God's commands are law. So what he's talking about is those who are 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 not under the law. Um, this is sort of a cause and effect argument in verses 13 and 14. And it can sound confusing, but it's really pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, Paul, who's writing, would know that some would say that sin only occurs when we willfully violate a law or the law, but Paul says that's not true. He acknowledges that sin entered the world, the knowledge of sin and what it was with the transgression of the law, But he said before the law, before Moses, original sin is proven by the fact that people died long before Moses was given the law. And In fact, Paul has proven in in the book of Romans prior to this that sin occurred long before the law when people violated what they knew of God through creation conscience. We go all the way back to Romans chapter 1. So the idea that a law wasn't given, somebody could say, well, I'm not guilty because I didn't know that was the law. Um, God would say, well, what about your conscience that I've given you? What about creation that, that declares the glory of God? Death results from sin, and since people died, they were rebelling against God even before the Ten Commandments were a thought uh, or a fact. Death comes through sin, and people have always died, and that means sin has always been in the world. That's what he's talking about. Then he goes on to say that Adam was a pattern of the one to come. And and this is the really good news, Dale, the rest of that uh, verse 14 in Romans 5, because fortunately for us, there are two pattern men in our text, two types, Adam and Jesus. Adam was a type of Christ, not that he was similar to Jesus. He was a type in that the choices he made had a permanent effect on mankind. Just as Jesus chose to die and we were saved, Adam's choice to sin resulted in death to all. 
Now, that also makes Adam a type of an antichrist. What is true of Jesus is true of Adam, but only in the opposite sense. So that's important. Those are fundamentals of our faith. Does that give you any help at all? Dale, are you gone? Okay. I hope so. Thank you for calling from... Oh, I can hear you now. Does that help you at all, Dale? It does. Thank you very much. And you have a Merry Christmas, you and Paula. I'll do it. Thank you, Dale. God bless you. Uh, Jonestown is in the uh, Round Rock area um, of Texas, so thank you for listening out in uh, the Round Rock area. Go visit my favorite donut place in Round Rock for me if you get a chance, Dale. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Leah. She says, is penal substitutionary atonement an essential for being a Christian? Leah, that is a really, really nuanced question, a difficult question to answer. Um, An essential for being a Christian is the person of Christ, who he is, what we believe about him, Um, things that deal with his character, with his nature. Um, some of the details of doctrines we get wrong. Now, penal substitutionary atonement simply means that Jesus took our place on the cross and was punished. The prophet Isaiah in 50, chapter 53 says that the punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him. So it is an important doctrine. And I think as we grow in Christ, we need to understand that Jesus paid the price. He took the wrath of God on the cross to spare us. In fact, Isaiah says that it pleased God to crush him. Now, it didn't please him like, oh, this is fun. It pleased him because God was looking at the reward. One man was sacrificed. One man was punished. One man forsaken by God so that all men could be drawn to God. Now, the reason the question is a difficult one to answer is because there are um, um, Christians, um, Christian sects that don't believe that Jesus took the wrath of God, that God wasn't angry at sin, and that Jesus didn't take the full wrath of God on the cross. Orthodox Christians uh, believe that. I, I can't judge their salvation, but I can tell you this, that anybody that doesn't believe in the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus uh, is missing out on on what's clearly rich and true about their faith. So I think it's really, really important that that we believe it. I think it is a doctrine that's essential for life, but whether or not it's essential to be a Christian, I'm not one to say that because somebody identifies as an Orthodox Christian, or, and there are other Christian sects, um, you know, we, we want to believe that God is nice, that God's not angry. It, it makes us feel better emotionally. But what we need to understand is that sin, because of God's holiness, sin has to be punished. So it's very, very, very important. Uh, is it an essential of our faith? Um, I can't make that decision. It's essential for my faith. I can tell you that. So, Leah, I hope that helps. Here's a question that was just called into the studio. Um, anonymously, why do Christians celebrate Christmas when it's a pagan holiday? Same reason, Anonymous, that we celebrate you being a Christian, because you were a pagan and God gave you a whole new life. Christmas is a fleshy, a carnal holiday in the world. But what we who are Christians have done is turn it into uh, one of the two times per year, Easter being the other, where the whole world is aware of either a baby being born in Bethlehem or a a tomb being empty in Jerusalem. And we've taken these holidays and we've redeemed them for the glory of God. And that's what God does. It is a childish and an immature faith that says, well, because it started out as pagan, I'm not going to celebrate it. Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate Christmas. Black Israelites don't celebrate Christmas. But you see, they don't have Jesus. We who have Jesus, we take this time to say, here was a child that was given. That's why we celebrate it. And the fact that something started out as pagan, I'm a pastor for twenty, almost 23 years, anonymous, and I started out as a pagan, and God redeemed me. 
So if he can redeem me, he can certainly redeem a holiday. And I love the fact that what God does is he takes that which was blessing the world in an anti-God way and then repackages it and blesses the world in a Christian message. So that's why we celebrate it, and we ought to do so. This is a time when every Christian has the same message on their lips for the unbelieving people around them. And it's a message about a baby miraculously born for one reason, one reason only, to die. That's the way I started this program. You know, we could, taking that line of reasoning to its logical conclusion, we could say that um, secular music that's been redeemed. Uh, uh, we've got a lot of people in our church who are wonderfully gifted, and they made music in the world. They sold a lot of records. They did a lot of worldly things that made them famous. But when they met Jesus and they were redeemed, now they use those gifts to tell the world about Jesus. Christmas is the same. Easter is the same. Don't fall into that legalism trap. I don't know a single Christian in this world who has this approach to Christmas or Easter who has any joy in their heart, who has a faith that's worth catching. So consider that God wants to use this and he wants to use you. Instead of telling your kids what they can't do, let them know what this is all about and that it's for them. Jesus died for them. That's why he was born. So I hope that's clear. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Dallas. Um, a pastor I was listening from Dallas is the name, not the city. Uh, a, do I have a question there? Okay. Uh, a pastor I was listening to said that babies, if they die, might not go to heaven unless they were chosen by God. Is that true? Uh, Dallas, it is not true. And, and avoid listening to those kind of pastors. That's um, hyper-Calvinism or Reformed theology. Uh, God knows if they were going to accept him if they'd lived. Well, God knew that that wouldn't be a question because he knew when they were going to die. We're judged for what we do with what we know. We're never judged by a just and merciful God for what we don't know. Now, we don't know, Dallas, what the age of accountability is. Um, we've got kids here who are accountable at four years of, old, of age and have proven it. They've walked with the Lord ever since. We've got kids that are 14 and 15 who I don't believe are accountable yet. But you see, God knows. And we're only accountable for what we do with what we know. So babies, innocent babies, though they're born with a sin nature, though babies are instantly selfish and without mercy, they're selfish. If they die, they go into the presence of the Lord. It's one of the things that comforts us about the more than 65 million babies that have been murdered since 1973 in this country. Well, we never had a world blessed with their presence. They will be in heaven. So babies... David said, I can't, or he can't come to me when his child died, but I will go to him, David understood. So babies go to heaven. It has nothing to do with election. We are condemned because of our sin, and only because of our sin. And an infant doesn't have any opportunity to sin. So Dallas, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question. We've got just a little under three minutes left in the program today. Deborah wants to know, what does the Bible say about birth control? Deborah, the Bible doesn't say anything. Um, if somebody's trying to tell you that birth control is sin, um, just don't listen to them. Uh, just ignore them. Romans 14.23 says, anything not of faith is sin. 
Uh, if you are married and, and you and your husband decide, Deborah, that now is not the time to have children and you're going to use birth control, uh, my only concern would be that that's a prayerful decision rather than a selfishly motivated one. Uh, it's a decision that has really sought the heart of God on this issue. If he wants to bless you with children, I'd want you to be blessed. It doesn't matter whether you think you're ready. What matters is what God thinks. But if God is okay with this, then don't let anybody else lay a guilt trip on you. Don't let anybody else tell you what is or isn't the will of God. So um, you and your husband pray. Do what you think God wants you to do. Uh, if you are unmarried, you don't need birth control unless it's medical. And I understand there are some women who, who have uh, a medical need to take birth control. Um, but there's no need for birth control. If you're planning a, a marriage and you and your husband trying to decide when to have kids, leave that up to God. Um, but if he tells you it's okay to exercise birth control or to take birth control pills, then you're free to do it. And it's your decision between you, your husband, and God, and nobody else needs to have any opinion or any input on it at all. It is not a sin uh, to take birth control. So, Deborah, I hope that answers your question. Um, let me remind you as we're at the end of the program today, let me remind you that we will not be on the air live on Monday or Tuesday this week. Uh, Monday morning, of course, is Christmas, and Tuesday, the day after, uh, we're just the extra day for the holiday, KSLR will be closed. Um, we thank you so much. This has been a, a year. We'll, I know we'll be back next week uh, to finish the year, uh, but uh, it's been really, really a great year for us on the radio program. We appreciate so many of you listening and so many calling. We appreciate the emails. Um, just the love and the prayers more than you can possibly know so have a Merry Christmas tell people about this miraculous child that was born and share him with them wherever you go you've been listening to the word to stand in for life I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas and I know I say this for Paula Merry Christmas God bless you see you next week Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.